This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Mark Rignaris is professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He earned both his MA and PhD in sociology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Rignaris has devoted his research to the areas of family, marriage, religion, and sexual behavior. He's published dozens of academic articles, as well as four books with Oxford University Press. In addition to his academic and teaching responsibilities, Professor Rignaris is a senior fellow at the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. His most recent book is The Future of Christian Marriage, and this book is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Mark Rignaris, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks, Al. Good to be with you. Yeah, you know, uh, your book... uh, follows a trajectory of the research and writing you've been doing for a long time. But there's one aspect of it that surprised me. So I just want to start out by asking, uh, why is this not about marriage or Christian marriage in the United States? Uh, You're really taking on something more ambitious than that. Yeah, that's a good question. The thing is, it grew out of the last book, Cheap Sex, and uh, I had, which was entirely United States in its uh, focus. And so after that, it kind of went through this you know, intellectual depression didn't last too long, but they're like, oh, what am I going to do next? And I really wanted something positive. So I wanted to focus on marriage, but, you know, I had a chapter on marriage mentalities, I think in that book. Uh, and, and I, I kind of thought I got my head around how this was connected to marriage among young adults in the United States. And I thought, well, okay, I haven't really done a deep dive on Christians. Um, but like, well, maybe there, you know, it's time to take this international a little bit and see if there are other people elsewhere who had good ideas. And at that time, related to some of the previous research I had been doing, I had a little bit more exposure internationally. And so my curiosity about what was going on elsewhere was growing at the same time. So that's why I decided to uh, expand it to be about Christian marriage in the United States, as well as abroad. And yet, as you know, when I, and I start writing that book, it, it increasingly seems like the book becomes about marriage in general, right? In part because, you know, people have different visions for what Christian marriage is, uh, but lots of things that unite them. And yet, as I go along, you start to see um, lessons for marriage as an institution internationally, domestically. And so the further I wrote, the more it sort of gets back around to the idea of marriage in general. You know, when uh, I saw what you were doing, the first uh, question that came to my mind was, okay, so this is going to uh, eventually reveal a pattern. And the pattern is going to come down to the fact that the rest of the world is more or less like the United States. (laughs) Uh, that is Christian marriage in the United States or marriage among Christians in the United States. And at least by my reading, it turns out to be more the same than different. Yeah. Uh, so we found some good ideas, I think, but we also found some uh, the parallels between the United States and the rest of the world. And sort of both as Christians go and as the world goes, um, it is clear that what happens here 
just doesn't stay here. And in a, a, a domain and a world that has is connected within an instant now, I mean, culturally, like, like Pat Deneen talks about, like there's a, there's a monoculture that's sort of saturating uh, the globe. And so indeed what happens to Christians here and how they think about it and how we talk about it um, carries weight far beyond our borders, which is, uh, you know, staggering and it, and it feels like a grave responsibility. Right, it's a rather uh, chastening uh, realization. As uh, you begin the book, you talk about a Western recession in marriage, and uh, we've been noticing this for a long time, but some people thought it was temporary. It appears not. Can I explain that to us? Yeah, uh, that, the temporary idea was is, is still talked about a lot among uh, my peers in the sociology of marriage and family. The idea that there's just a tempo effect, uh, that, oh, people are just marrying later, but it's not going to affect overall marriage rates. Well, uh, you know, I plugged those numbers in at a country level to sort of see if the sort of the tempo effect, the delay effect, effect alters overall total marriage rates. And it's clear in, in all regions of the, the globe that uh, a slowdown in terms of uh, age at marriage not only you know pushes it off, but it it means fewer people everywhere are going to get married uh, in the future than we've seen in the past. So, you know, I don't know that's going to convince any of my colleagues because they uh, seem fairly invested in the, the delayed approach and all that that entails. Um, but I don't think their their idea that it's no big deal and that it's just a delay has any real basis to it. Well, and of course, uh, just a delay would be a very significant sociological and moral fact. And, uh, and, and there, there are two ways the delay could happen. Uh, one is that uh, you're just looking at the big data and uh, the percentages, but the other thing is looking at the timeline and recognizing that uh, the delay of marriage itself eventually means fewer people will ever get married. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when, you, when you look globally at this sort of thing, uh, and, and it's happening across Europe, it's happening in Asia, somewhat for different reasons in those places, because culturally they're quite distinctive. But uh, the overall share of the population who's married by different um, ages, 30, 40, 50, uh, is, is, is far south of 100%, far south of 90, 80. Uh, I think some places top out at 80. But, you know, some places don't get that way until they're, people are age 40. Uh, so it's, uh, it's certainly more pronounced than we would have seen as recently as 30 to 40 years ago. Right. I think of my own timeline. I'm, uh, I'm in my 60s, 61 right now. And uh, everyone I knew in college expected to marry, with extremely rare exceptions, and, uh, and everyone basically did marry, Not, you know, obviously with a few exceptions. To get to celibacy which is in a Christian context, clearly understood. But uh, by the time you get to my daughter's college generation, also in a Christian institution uh, by its own affirmation, and I mean substantially so, the fact is the vast majority have gotten married, but now 10 years or more after graduation, that's not true in the same way it was true for my generation. Yeah, uh, I think I grew up in probably a similar kind of place as you. Uh, 
I grew up in rural Iowa where it, it was just in the water, <laughs> figuratively speaking. Um, uh, they call sociologists called that marriage naturalists versus uh, marriage planners. And you know, somewhere in the past 40 years, the, the naturalists have lost out and, and almost invariably uh, we inhabit a sort of marriage planning world. Uh, and that planning is pushed off. Um, you know, we sort of, we actively sort of encourage our children to, to get their education done first. Uh, we, we warn them about you know, first loves, things like this, uh, and, and tell them, you know, not to get serious. And there's a plenty of time for that. And, but behind this sort of uh, is, are two kind of challenges for, for Christians who care. One is sort of um, the means by how, how people are meeting and uh, are we doing a, a good enough job sort of making a pathway for that. But this, the second thing, which happened almost without notice um, until it's as if we woke up one morning, like realized the world, everyone, Christians included, thinks differently about marriage uh, than they used to, right? So it's means, but it's also mentalities that have as, as a, a combination have created a very different kind of, of yeah. environment for which people are trying to get married. You know, uh, Professor, uh, one of the things that, that I've definitely noted, lecturing and writing on marriage, sex, sexuality, family, children, procreation, contraception, all, the, all these issues for uh, 40 years or so, but especially the last 30 years. Uh, one of the things I've noted is that Christians don't think they've changed their mind. They, they are unaware of what were at first subtle shifts, but are now, I mean, absolutely seismic shifts in the way uh, Christians think about it. You mentioned Christian parents saying, you know, wait, uh, don't be in a rush, establish yourself, you know, professionally and all the rest. They don't recognize that they're basically turning their back on 20, uh, 20 centuries of Christian history, two millennia, and, and saying, hey, you know, we know better now. But their reality window has shifted so much that uh, I, I find uh, Christian parents tend to panic now. And, and I mean, parents of adult children, they, they tend to panic now when their children are about 29 and they realize, well, we're in big trouble here. But they were a part of the trouble from the beginning. Right, exactly. And it, the, the, the mentality of most people, uh, probably of age 50 and up, especially in the, the broader Christian community, for the longest time was that marriage was a foundation, right? That you just you started this at a you know, relatively young age, by 25-ish, often. You know, if you're a little late, no big deal. Uh, but it was a foundation because you, you, it was something that you did together and then you weathered things together. It could often be a little spell of poverty, etc., And from which you accomplished things, you built something because it was a foundation. And, you know, <laughs> as if... Uh, by means we don't know, um, here we are 40 years later, and we don't really think of marriage as a foundation. We think of it as uh, a capstone, like uh, Andy Cherland, a sociologist, talks about it. it, you know, which is a very different kind of thing than the foundation. It's, all right, we're not building on it. We're capping off a well-lived young adulthood by thinking that marriage is somehow this reward for the beautiful, for the successful, and uh, as you say, like this kind of unravels over yeah. the ninth centuries of, of thought on this matter. Right. 
Right. And and by the way, I uh, I, I noted that you cited Andrew Churlin here, and I, I watched his research as he was publishing it in articles. And then, of course, his most recent book came out. And uh, the thing that gets me is there are a lot of insights in what he writes. Uh, he, he clearly is tracking a lot of this very closely. But the overarching kind of ethos of his research is, chill, don't worry. But I look at the same, res- the same research, I, I, I'm, I'm very worried because I see more at stake here than the delay of marriage and, uh, and, and the sociological redefinition of marriage. Right. I think he and, he and you probably have <clears throat> different perspectives on uh, both present and future goods. So yep. uh, I'm not surprised he said that and that you are worried and I don't blame you. You know, uh, marriage as a foundation versus marriage as a capstone, I, I think really is a powerful metaphor for understanding, you know, where we are, where people say, I'm not able to get married now, which based of, used to be, you know, based upon achieving puberty uh, and, uh, you know, some uh, some capstones of adulthood. And uh, and but that those capstones were often uh, well, I should say, excuse me, those uh, those those marks of adulthood were often uh, granted rather than earned, you know, and, and so the father who had a, a a son and he had a farm, he would carve off a part of the farm for the son to begin and to establish a homestead. And uh, given my own family background uh, in the um, Anabaptist tradition, generations back, that's exactly how this 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 started. And uh, but now it's assumed that uh, the investment of parents is basically uh, through, say, the college university investment, maybe graduate school. And then after that, there needs to be, even though the educational process itself is extended and delayed, uh, this this extended adolescence and delayed adulthood. uh, Now there's got to be another period of proving yourself financially and professionally and personally before you can even think about getting married. Right. Right. It's it's, it's ironic that like. The one thing that has kind of long indicated marriageability in a man, which is sort of like you know, the promise of adequate earning power, uh, if not the reality, uh, that's still in place, but it's, it's the only sort of thing that's been carried forward and added on top of it now are all these uh, additional priorities, uh, both from his side of the equation and from her side of the equation. So. We have probably a lot more deal breakers than we used to. Well, partly because, you know, in a, in a, in a, a way that's not true of the past, people can afford not to marry. Um, and we risk in that, in doing so, uh, investing in, with marriage, this sort of power and status that perhaps is uh, too much for it, right? I mean, it's, you know, go back to Ecclesiastes and it seems a very practical, pragmatic, um, wise thing, uh, institution to enter into. And now in some ways we just think differently about it as if it's somehow, um, not I wouldn't say more sacred, but sort of we invest it and endow it with, with meanings and expectations of it, including material expectations, but also psychological expectations, that it might not be able to bear. Right. Well, I, I mean, uh, it wasn't intended to bear by itself. Yeah. It, was, it was intended to be uh, something like a, uh, a, a, a long, blessed travail. You know, it's not an accident that the, uh, 
the most famous metaphor in the English devotional tradition for, uh, for the Christian faith itself is a pilgrimage. I think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, a pilgrimage includes uh, uh, flat land and arduous terrain. And marriage used to be what young adults entered into, a man and a woman, uh, in richness uh, uh, and, and in poverty, uh, in, uh, in sickness and in health. Uh, but that's gone now. You can only have health and you can only have wealth. Uh, yeah, otherwise, there's for, no reason to get married. entering into it, uh, you, you think about uh, the, the poverty thing, uh, the capstone mentality today is not exclusively uh, a, a domain or an idea that the middle class and upper middle class hold to. It's the, the same vision that's been sold to both the upper class, lower class, working class, and the poor. Everybody has the same kind of material and psychological expectations of what marriage is supposed to look like. But only some of us have a ghost of a chance of reaching those um, unrealistic expectations. So what happens is that the poorer among us, including Christians, feel like we can't afford marriage, and so we don't get married. And so what you have is two people who can afford to and who have been successful enough to accomplish this together, adding together their resources, while the people who desperately need the assistance, the pragmatic part of marriage, aren't getting together, which uh, exacerbates inequality. And that's why in the book I say, you know, marriage may actually be the social justice issue of our time. It yeah. certainly isn't thought of that way yeah. by very many people. Yeah. yeah, well, the denial, effectively, sociologically, of marriage uh, to many people just based upon socioeconomic status is indeed a justice issue. And I see a justice issue very much in the fact that you've got the liberal elites who are living by a very different narrative than they're selling the rest of the population. Exactly. Right. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, they get married, Oftentimes they stay they, married. they get married, albeit uh, a little bit later, but they have the resources and, the, and the, the, the means by which to stay together. And they realize that it's good for kids, even while they're happy to uh, uh, shred those of us who sort of want to say that in public and in writing. Uh, they're actually living the thing that we know to be true. We all kind of know to be true uh, for the sake of public esteem. Yeah, you know, uh, I had... Uh just recently, reason to talk to a uh, very secular uh, college student uh, coming from a family of uh, tremendous wealth. And uh, one of the interesting things that he affirmed is that if he were to get a young woman pregnant uh, out of wedlock, it would be socially devastating for his family. And I thought, okay, now that's perfect because you guys are saying to the rest of the world, that's an old sexual morality, yeah. but your own family is going to hold to that tenaciously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting then. I mean, it almost suggests that one of the old archetypes and essentially expectations of, of, of marriage uh, is a, a sexual union that is fertile. So that it's like, it's, it becomes shocking uh, when we actually think about, you know, what that looks like in reality. Yeah. Let's get to that in just a moment. Let sure. me, uh, let me raise another point. You, there's one, 
just uh, a rather incidental insight you make in the book that I think uh, I, I, I want others really to know about. And uh, this made perfect sense. I had not thought of it this way before. But you point out that uh, even this idea of being economically stable, ready, uh, able to get married uh, is rooted in the fact that the people making that consideration tend to think of their parents with the wealth their parents had when the children were teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not uh, as how those parents started out. That was a, the wisdom of an economist who had studied this very issue and found that uh, um, young adults, when they were expect when they were getting married, imagined or or hoped or believed that sort of what they should expect in the, the early part of their marriage is the same kind of social and economic standing and resources and material access that they had when they were teenagers, which, um, you know, that was, he, he did that one back in, I think the seventies or eighties, but it, it kind of gives you an, a window into sort of, Oh, I'm starting to see how we have changed our, our mentalities about this stuff. Uh, but how do you, how do you get there, right? Uh, you have to kind of rule out childbearing early in a marriage if you want to be kind of, of, of that sort of means. And you think, oh, well, I need to afford a house. Housing prices are going up. Like, honey, we have both got to be full on in that, in that employment market uh, for several years before we can even give this a thought. So yeah, he was onto something that certainly frames a lot of people's mentalities yeah. now. Well, this is very similar to what the uh, the old adage used to be about the uh, the young uh, law associate hired who thinks that lawyers make what partners make, and uh, doesn't realize you know that's a, that is partner is the capstone, uh, and uh, getting hired is the foundation. There's the, there there are usually decades between. Yes the first and the second. This happens too with the uh, yeah. u- uh, university uh, admissions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's almost like we, every kid now has a s- signing day where like, ah, I got into the University of Texas or something more prestigious than that. And I keep thinking, it's not that hard to get into some of these places. Now the real accomplishment is four years from now or five or six increasingly. So yeah, people don't, uh, people want to rush to the, the end product. But I mean, I think about like human happiness from what they can tell peaks, you know, towards retirement. So if, if happiness is what you want, uh, you just merely need to age another 50 years first. You know, one of the uh, amazing things about this, and and, uh, I I don't want to jump into the childbearing quite yet, but here I go. Uh, But speaking about happiness, uh, I, I just have not found uh, the young couple with children who lives an absolutely untroubled life. But I've not found one such family that would trade it for anything. And, and so there's an outside and an inside here. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think it, it requires something as strong as really thick Christianity to kind of uh, convince people to look at it from the inside and not from the outside. It's, uh, it's, it's growing increasingly difficult. Uh, I know one of my former postdocs who works at Pew now had did a study on um, congregational fertility. And, you know, he found that 
that was the, the level at which you could definitely tell an effect uh, that the people who you're in contact with and social relationship and friendships with have a powerful effect, the most powerful effect uh, on how you think about your own ability in your family to uh, navigate two, three, four, five, six children, um, far more than a denominational effect, far more than even a uh, family of origin effect. Well, you are speaking to a Baptist, so I'm pre-convinced of that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the congregation is absolutely central. And, and it, that's what gives me hope because uh, my wife and I are a part of a congregation right here in Louisville, Kentucky, where the, uh, the fecundity is obvious and uh, the joy in it is just transparent. And the, uh, yeah, the peer structure is absolute celebration. And, uh, and it has a real effect. It has an effect on people you can see come into the church as young adults, and uh, they weren't necessarily buying into all this, but, uh, but you look at them 10 years later, they're bought in and, uh, and thrilled about it. I, I want to speak about this marriage recession. Just, you, you, uh, you're good with the numbers, so give us some numbers. Uh, you know, what, what does this marriage recession actually look like? Right. Uh, so we don't have numbers from sort of Christian marriages or even marriages among Christians uh, per se. Just in the larger culture. In the larger culture. But uh, if, if you look at sort of, uh, we got chapter one, I talked about, uh, I showed census numbers from different countries across Europe, Japan is kind of a comparison. And, and basically you walk away from, the, from that with the understanding, okay, yeah, Scandinavia, they were early converters and, and uh, uh, their numbers dropped early, and, but they have kind of bottomed out, uh, whereas other countries were in the sort of 80% of, of uh, women by age 30 had been married and back in 1980. And then it just dropped about, you know, essentially a percentage point a year as it has in the United States, 80 to 70 to 60, 50 to, to where we're at today is like we're, we're talking about um, uh, in the sort of 40s, 30s, or even some of those countries in the high 20s, right? Yeah, Italy, Italy you're not going to get there, but, uh, but you know, yeah. if, if only 30% of women have married by age 30, which is sort of when peak fertility starts to decline, um, you're not going to find 80% uh, of them married by age 40. So uh, in, in different countries, this varies some. You know, in Russia, it's early, but, you know, early in, early out, uh, which is sort of its, its own distress. So, uh, yeah, I could pick apart particular countries if you wanted. Well, I think the, the most important thing is to look at the general pattern, which by your chapter one is something like 80 percent to something like 50 percent. Yeah, uh, I'd say even closer know. to 40. Yeah. Wow. Uh, peak marrying age in the United States is all, has been 25 to 34, the kind of this range. And yeah, that, that share is now in around 40%, well eclipsed now by the share that people that age that aren't married yet, which is just staggering, really. And of course, uh, again, that, that is a direct line of causality to birth rate. Uh, I mean, because you're, you're, you don't have to have a degree in biology or physiology to figure that out. Uh, but also just lifestyle and, uh, and and what it takes to raise a uh, a young child first of all from one to to five and then uh, not to mention from uh, five to uh, twenty five. 
Um, as, as you're looking at marriage itself, uh, you make a couple of interesting arguments, or, or at least you hint at them. And so the, the, you're talking to a theologian, so I, I've, I, I've, got, I've got to press you on the impact of the Protestant Reformation in the West <laughs> uh, on, on marriage, because sure, I've done sure, a sure. lot of work in this. I'm really because you hint at, you don't really yeah. quite have a thesis, but uh, I, yeah. you know, spell out the way you see that. Right. Uh, I hint at that because I'm not a historian or a theologian. Uh, I, I quote a handful of people. Uh, but the thing that is most compelling about this to me is sort of, well, what happens when we start esteeming marriage uh, and giving, not esteeming, I should say, giving oversight of marriage to a civil authority rather than to a, a Christian authority? Um, yeah, marriage is a universal, yes, so it's, it exists well, you know, fine outside of the Christian church. Um, but insofar as you have civil authorities who are operating in tune with Christian authorities, you're probably not going to notice a whole lot of a difference. So I, I mentioned, uh, I think it was in chapter two, that in reality, on the ground, the effect of the Protestant Reformation didn't really uh, matter a ton for what we saw. But, you know, you fast forward slowly but surely and you realize, okay, now, you know, it's not just a thing in law, but the law is a teacher. So it's a thing in, in, in our minds and our mentalities is um, what is legal civilly becomes, you know, what is moral in some ways in our minds. And uh, as long as marriage norms and rules and laws tracked the, the, the greater Christian uh, world in terms of churches and authorities and denominations, we're going to be okay. And when it started to veer away, which is, you know, not just 2015, um, well before that, you start to see like, ah, now we're kind of held hostage to the idea that marriage is, is a civil uh, oversight. And so if they change it, what does that mean for us? Now, some people hide within the, uh, the domain of, oh, well, they can have their rules. We have ours. I, I, I think you, you and I probably agree on this, that that's, uh, that's precipitous. Um, that's not a, a, a very good and helpful way to think because then people are thinking, about very different kinds of meanings of what marriage itself is, that it's malleable, that it's uh, um, by fiat, we can do something quite different. So my point about the, the Reformation is mostly about uh, how um, oversight of marriage becomes civil and the confusion that can kind of generate. Yeah, the, uh, the, the pushback I would give as a theologian uh, uh, to that is that, uh, and church historian, is, is that uh, the, the, the pointing of the finger at Protestantism here is theologically, first of all, the, uh, the redefinition of marriage in, in what the Reformers clearly saw as a more biblical conception um, as a blessed covenantal rite, but not as a sacrament. And uh, but but then the uh, the the fact that there was a separate separation of throne and altar and the arrival of uh, of, of the modern divide between uh, religious government and and civil authority. 
But I don't believe that uh, the Protestant Reformation is apart from that story, nor do I believe that uh, if the Reformation hadn't happened, that throne and altar would have stayed united. The moment that you have uh, the separation in the, in the mind and in the law uh, between a religious authority and a civil authority, one of the points you, you, you make in the book, which is absolutely right, is that neither one can fail to have its own regulation of marriage. And so the people, I, I, back when same-sex marriage was, uh, was being debated in the United States prior to uh, Obergefell, when it was being openly debated, there are a lot of Christians who said, well, it really doesn't matter what the civil society says because we're going to define marriage this way. Well, it, there, there, there's no island you live on. Yes, we still deny that uh, as Christians— my denomination, my church, clearly denies, and, and the vast, unspeakably vast majority of Christians all over the world still define marriage as the union of a man and a woman, period, and nothing else is marriage. But we're living in societies in which the definition is no longer the same, and eventually the civil authority has more temporal authority by definition, and so that, that split's just not, um, it's, it's not whole, and, uh, you know, so it reminds me of the, uh, the historian and, uh, and uh, uh, scholar John Shelton Reed, who, who said at one point, you know, if, uh, if Henry VIII is the beginning of your church history story, then, uh, then marriage is problematic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's truth in that. Right. This is uh, John Shelton Reed of North Carolina fame. Yeah, yeah. He was a professor in the department where I got my degree. Oh, I see. Yep, a long uh, time ago. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't put that together. Yep, but uh, it's kind of an institution. Yeah, and uh, you know, world famous as a expert on many things, including barbecue. Yep. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, his uh, his historical insights uh, into the Church of England uh, and to uh, basically you know its application to marriage in this case, uh, nothing is is uh, of course. I hold to a Christian and Augustinian understanding of, of human society, and that's rooted in human sinfulness. So we don't expect anything to be absolutely clear, absolutely straight, absolutely right. The question is, what's more right, what's more straight, and how do we know what straight and right are? And, uh, and that takes us back to another point, which I want to ask you about in your book, which uh, basically comes down to uh, marriage once delayed— and, and, and then redefined, it, this means that Christians do have to go back and ask basic questions. And I mentioned Augustine. So there is one big theory of marriage you talk about in your book, and uh, you, you tend to say yes in part, no in part, and that's the exchange theory of marriage. So I'd, I'd love for you to describe that. Then as a theologian, I'm going to come back uh, with Augustine. Yeah. The exchange theory about marriage, uh, it's not popular with tons of Christians, although I, I do believe it is not unchristian in, in, in uh, its nature. Um, it, it tracks with something I've been uh, writing about for the past several years. So basically, at the, at the core of, of marriage, uh, in my argument, um, is that we have a, a, a sexual union of complementary types, man and woman, um, in, you know, in an, in an exchange environment, not, not a purely gift environment, but sort of 
uh, you know, love as gift, but also love as expecting sort of uh, things of the other person. I don't talk about it quite like that in the book, but you know, there's a, a an exchange relationship in the sexual union between man and woman at the core, surrounded by, and I talk about this in chapter three, surrounded by four key supporting expectations that serve that union. The idea that this is a comprehensive union. It's like, it's, it's not partial. Um, we're, we're all in. Uh, the idea of fidelity, the idea of permanence, and the idea or expectation of children, if possible, to sort of uh, cement this union. So these four supports are in service to the core, which is why later in the book, um, I sort of, I problematize uh, two things. Um, Same-sex marriage somewhat in passing because it's not able to replicate the core, even while they can, in theory, try to replicate the four supports. Uh, and then I pr problematize cohabitation, especially among Christians, among whom it's starting to grow in popularity, for thinking that all they really need is somehow this, this core and that these other things can be added later in a piecemeal fashion. I say that's kind of scandalous from a sort of a Christian perspective. Well, it, it uh, shouldn't be uh, in, in the sense that it's, uh, it's kind of demonstrated by common grace in, in general sense. But Augustine, the, the greatest of the church fathers, had his own basic exchange theory of marriage. He's very blunt about it. And uh, there's something a man wants, there's something a woman wants, and uh, marriage is the right way for each to get what the uh, what 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 he and she needs, and uh, within the context of what is blessed by the church and uh, and recognized by society, and exclusivity is very much a part of that. But the 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 system worked, and as a matter of fact, if that's all you know about marriage, the system worked until men could get sex outside of marriage. So we're and, talking, uh, you know, yeah. <clears throat> certainly mid to later 20th century development. Um, that, uh, you know, that goes back to the, the book Cheap Sex, where we talk about the, 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 the pre-pill mating market and the post-pill mating market look very different in how people conduct themselves on it and what they can expect and what they can hope for. And, you know, that just, uh, that changed a good deal about how people go about navigating this search for, for a mate. It's, it's far more complex and open to duplicity and deceit and broken hearts than, uh, than it once was. But this, uh, this cheapening of sex, you track kind of cross-culturally. I think the most interesting aspect yeah. you dealt with in the book is uh, the Russian experiment in cheap sex. The so I should say Soviet yeah. experiment in cheap sex. Yeah, right. Yeah, I have a section uh, where I sort of, since Russia was part of my data collection project, um, you know, I started digging back into the history, uh, come to find, and you know, I'm not a historian of this, but I was surprised to see it. Like, well, you know, we didn't really have the first sexual revolution. Uh, the Russians managed to do that in the uh, early 20s, where early communist uh, intellectuals convinced Lenin to uh, sort of uh, ease up on, on marriage laws and sort of you know, promote sort of the freedom and utter radical equality of men and women. Um, children be darned in that 
framework. And that got put into law even over the, the vociferous objections of many of the people from whom they actually uh, asked their opinion. Um, so by 1926, they have, uh, I believe it was 26, some formal codes that sort of overhauled this. Lenin dies around that time. Um, things are going south in terms of the, the, the communities because men are not sticking around uh, in predictable kinds of fashions. Children are not having uh, mothers around because mothers have to work, expected to work, etc. So you have foundlings all over the place, which is a disaster socially. And so by the time Stalin comes to power, I think, I think it's about by 32, he puts the kibosh on this stuff and basically reverses the law saying, we're not going to be able to build the, the uh, communist vision that we have uh, in, in a sort of disastrous kind of sense, uh, community sense that we have today with, with children. So uh, I, I feel for the, the people back then, you know, the, the church had already been suppressed, but uh, then just have this whipsaw kind of action yeah. from your government about uh, intimate life and relationships must have been really disorienting. Yeah. You know, one of the primary witnesses to that is someone you cite in your book in a couple of places, and that's Pitarim Sorokin, who really was the first professor of sociology at, uh, at Harvard, and uh, someone I've uh, I followed very closely. He was under the threat of execution uh, by the Bolsheviks and uh, eventually came to the United States. But he has some really bracing things to say about the necessity of marriage just to hold any society together. And he had seen the disaster you described. Yeah, Sorokin and uh, one of the first fellows he hired, uh, Carl Zimmerman, kind of the heart and soul of the Harvard sociology department, were unabashedly um, antagonistic towards some of the early uh, indications of um, cultural change around marriage and family. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, this is not 50s, 60s stuff. This is 20s, 30s, 40s kinds of uh, sensibility. So you're not seeing it in the data yet. What they're seeing it, and I describe this, is in cultural bits and literature um, and art and film, um, rather unhappy with sort of the, sort of the mentalities uh, they're, they're, they're witnessing. And so who pushes back at these guys? Uh, some Hollywood figures, including Ronald Reagan, who thinks uh, this, they need to, to, to chill out. Um, which is, is ironic to, to see how far we've come. Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're a few generations removed from the sort of acceptance of the kind of patterns that they had given warning about back in the 30s. Um, and they, you know, they were then sort of pushed to the edge of the Department of Sociology not that long afterwards. Well, you and can see now why. they're kind I mean, of like a, an yeah. afterthought. Right. Yeah, well, an embarrassment, frankly. Uh, because uh, Sorokin spoke in moral terms, uh, uh, as did another professor who was at Harvard for a brief amount of time, Christopher Dawson, uh, uh, actually the first Roman Catholic ever to teach on the faculty at Harvard. And uh, you, you look back at the language that was coming from the Harvard faculty at that time, and you think that is, that's a world uh, ago, yeah. uh, just yeah. in terms it, it's of hard to believe, Harvard really. is now. Yeah. Uh, and not that long in, in temporal history. Right. But, uh, yeah, there are still people alive who had both of them as professors. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, as, you, as you look at other aspects, uh, 
the category of uncertainty I thought was really helpful. And I, I think as I, as I look at marriage theologically, historically, morally, I think that uh, element of uncertainty is one of the most subversive elements in the current marriage equation. So, so talk about how you came upon that and, and, and how that plays out. Yeah, uh, th- this was audible in listening to people everywhere. Some, some of it happens, you know, it comes from different sources that cause the angst, but they sort of, the anxiety, uncertainty, second guessing of people about both marriage and particular marriage partners sometimes mm-hmm. was uh, audible everywhere. Um, is it more it common among the, men or women? Is, excuse me. Is it? Is it? Did you find that uncertainty more commonly among men or women? Probably a bit more among men, but not profoundly so. They often have different things that they're anxious about. But uh, some of this kind of comes back to uh, the sort of digital turn in relationships of the last twenty years, and maybe even particularly in the last 10, 15 years is the idea that we have so many more options that we can see. They're often ephemeral. Uh, they're not really real. We, we can see them, uh, but it, it does a number psychologically on people to think that sort of, wow, you have a, an entire pool to pick from. How are you going to make up your mind about this? Uh, and that's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, people are on online dating now. If you don't really marry in college, uh, you kind of rapidly lose the, the, the big pool. So, yeah, maybe you can find it in church. But, you know, the problem with churches is, especially if you go to a really large church, like, well, there's not a really good way of meeting somebody short of just walking up to them and introducing, which is not actually a bad idea. However, so people have lost the sort of um, the means to date. So they turn online, which is uh, quite common, but online is sort of, it's it's a bottomless supply of people about whom you make up all sorts of ideas, fact, and fiction, uh, most of which are probably fictional, right? You don't actually have that many options. You just think you have a lot of options. So is, you know, compared to um, an earlier area, as as recently as 25 years ago, um, we managed to sort of seal the deal with far fewer options than people do today, which yeah. just stifles people. So, but it's uh, also, uh, it's, it, excuse me. Yep. There's really also an opportunity there, I think. So uh, I don't get to watch nor actually desire to watch much of what's on television, but uh, my wife and I were watching a rerun of Frasier. Some of the alive right now who will recognize that show. And, and the plot of this particular episode was a, uh, a Jewish mother, very Jewish, very stereotypical, played right into the, uh, the, the sitcom, uh, in which she was setting up her daughter for a date and with all the, the fall roll. And uh, the amazing thing is, my observation seeing that was, okay, I didn't grow up in a synagogue. I grew up in the First Baptist Church, but it was filled with mothers just like that. And, and it didn't have to be your mother. Every mother was trying to matchmake all the time and in the happiest, friendliest kind of way. And, you know, uh, Mark, I really think uh, there's a reticence now in the part of many churches for, uh, 
for people to make such suggestions. It seems uh, everything's now such a, a private sphere. I think we've right. really lost something there. Right. I mean, and I do talk a little bit about that in the back of the book, not so much connecting it to parents, but the, the notion that we're thinking of marriage as, as very private matter when, uh, you know, it, it's far more of a public matter than a private matter. Um, but yeah, uh, parents don't want to overreach. Uh, and we've got this, at the same time, this kind of this anxiety at the congregational level are, oh, are we esteeming marriage too much? We get accused of that all the time, right? Um, and I'm harming the, the feeling of, of singles acting as if they're incomplete, et cetera. You know, it makes pastors and priests' job very difficult to sort of think of how do I weave the right uh, thread here? Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, the, the way people used to do it actually is attractive to kids if they are... Um, they allow themselves to sort of to, to come to grips with that. I mean, elsewhere in the world, online dating was far more likely to be disparaged, except maybe in Russia, uh, because, you know, people just didn't, they felt it was artificial and it, they felt it was not um, really real. And they had, if they tried it, they had one or two bad experiences with it and thought, well, this is just not the way it's supposed to be in part, because I think they still can rely on, uh, human mediators. And frankly, human mediators are, are, are much better at this. We, we've come to trust these sort of algorithms as if they know us. <laughs> how can an algorithm know you better than your own family? And, and how honest are you when you set up the algorithm? <laughs> right. You know, uh, I Do mean, you really know what you want. Are you acting like you know what you want? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just it, it, it's 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 very frustrating uh, when I speak to these issues, which is fairly often. Uh, the pushback is often fierce. And, uh, you know, I've been in print and in public on these issues for a very long time. And uh, I'm not speaking as a sociologist, I'm speaking as a theologian and, uh, and Christian minister and uh, moralist, uh, ethicist. Uh, the reality is that I believe the scriptural uh, revelation is very clear that marriage should be normative for human beings. Now, normative doesn't mean there are no exceptions. It does mean it's the norm. And, and by the way, human society, the flourishing of human society depends upon it. The, 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 the mandate to fill the earth, uh, the reproduction mandate, the family intended to be a generative family, the, uh, the conjugal union intended to be a generative union. Uh, all this is pushed back on not only by many people who say, uh, well, that's just disparaging to people who aren't. Which, by the way, the Scriptures always, you know, if, 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 if that were a rule we follow, you don't set anything up where anyone doesn't fit this, then you can't have a Ten Commandments. Uh, you, you can't have a gospel, frankly. But, uh, but the pushback comes, surprising to me, from some older people as well as some younger people. And, uh, and it just tells me that somewhere... In the last, uh, say, 30 or 40 years, there's been a shift to this idea that all of this is merely private, which I think means it eventually, uh, Professor, it disappears. I think if it's private, then it just becomes so insignificant, uh, it doesn't matter. Right. It's, uh, it's distressing, to say the least. And I, thought, I didn't intend to include a sort of a private versus public discussion in the book, mm -hmm. but it just came shouting out at me that, um, you know, 
as long as we're thinking of this as private only, um, you know, the future of marriage in general and the future of marriage in the church is going to look more grim than it, than it, than it already is. And so, yeah, I, I'm with you on that in terms of the, the normative, the, the, sort of the, the long-standing good that marriage has done for civilization. Uh, people, when they are thinking rightly, should generally be able to recognize that. You turn to the scriptures, it begins with a marriage, it ends with a marriage. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it is a theme that uh, uh, is, uh, runs throughout it. Um, so it's in finishing that book, you know, people ask me like if I'm discouraged about the future of Christian marriage. Well, in the short run, I don't, I don't think things are going to improve radically uh, promptly. I'm not worried long-term uh, in part because uh, this is an institution that people naturally gravitate towards. They want these things. I mean, when I describe what marriage is and the, the key supports for it, everybody, uh, almost secular and sacred, when, uh, when we go to weddings are expecting and hoping for people these characteristics and traits and supports of it. Um, it's written, you know, dare I say, on the human heart. So uh, it's got a future. It's got a future. But, uh, you know, it sure would help if we uh, safeguarded, protected it, esteemed it uh, more prudently, intelligently, and not foolishly. Yeah, I guess uh, a, a part of the difficulty we face right now, just thinking this through, is uh, wondering where the where the bottom will come. And uh, because I, I do agree with you, I think it's a look. I'll start out by saying it's a creation institution. It's part of creation order. That, that marriage marriage will not pass away uh, in this age because uh, human survival eventually will depend upon it. If nothing more than just simply looking at where children are successfully raised and where they're not, where where there's some cultural endurance and where there's not, where there's some moral equity and human flourishing and where there's not. Uh, but I don't think we've hit the bottom in this because uh, right now people esteem modern libertarian personal autonomy uh, more than they do even uh, any good for the larger society. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. America has a a distinctive kind of conservatism that is uh, a blend of sort of genuine social conservatism and uh, the libertarianism which you speak, which you, know, you, you visit other countries and look at their Christian communities. There is a little bit less of that libertarianism uh, in other places. Uh, you know, I, I even think of, of, of France, right? They went the same way as we did around same-sex marriage, but the movement against it was impressive and it, it was not about libertarianism it was about you know uh the, the idea that you know that children you know did not need a, a mother and a father it was, it was a threat to the idea of of the very heart of the, the family and uh um the distinctiveness of, of man and woman, which uh, frankly was not a major player on this side of the Atlantic, because I remember very well that the, 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 the argument from evidence about the importance of marriage for children really didn't fly. Right, because uh, quite frankly, in all honesty, you're the sociologist here, but uh, trying to make that argument 
uh, flies in the face of the fact there's not enough evidence one way or the other. You know, as, as I think it was Samuel Alito said, you know, whatever same-sex marriage is, it's younger than a smartphone. Uh, there, there, it's ludicrous to say we have evidence-based, uh, you know, judgment to be made here. I appreciate the fact you brought up France. So uh, the fascinating thing to me right now about France is that same-sex marriage is probably more of a live issue culturally in France right now uh, than in the United States. And uh, so this is France, French Revolution, radical, you know, libertarianism. You go down, and then, of course, uh, you know, everything from Paris to basically French culture, French cinema, you know, tearing down any kind of vestiges of a repressive, you know, biblical morality. But right now, uh, same-sex couples, when it comes to adopting children or having access to, for instance, uh, IVF, other reproductive technologies in much of France— it's a very different picture than it would be yep. in the United States. Yep, yep. And France isn't alone. Uh, a variety of European countries just sort of, they think differently about um, the place of uh, a mother and a father in a, in a child's life as, as necessary, you know. And, and this was just sort of discouraging to me, you know, to have seen that several years ago that, uh, wow, you know, we, you know, United States, and, and I'd probably say Britain and her, her former colonies uh, sort of led the way in kind of uh, uh, a very sort of permissive, progressive sexual mentality that, uh, had, that didn't really regard what we owe to children and what we would want for children as part of any sort of uh, public um, moral norm. Uh, so it, you know, it's 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 interesting. Even uh, Michael Emerson, the, the sociologist who writes about race, spent a year in Copenhagen uh, several years ago, and he remarked to me, "It's like, yeah, they're liberal on this stuff, but you just don't see it. It is not like you see in the United States." Right, right. Uh, for instance, uh, people will say in uh, Stockholm and other places, you uh, you generally see a mother and a father walking with small children. Uh, in a way that is even different than what you would see here, frankly, in in Manhattan. Uh, by the way, it reminds me of a comment uh, that uh, I saw in a biography of uh, Ernest Hemingway years ago, and it simply said that you know Ernest Hemingway and other American writers like him went to Spain, went to France, and uh, talked to people, came back and said what the French and Spanish people thought. But actually, it was just what the kind of Spanish people who talked to Ernest Hemingway thought. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> actually. Right. Had yeah. very little to do yeah. with Spain or France, uh, but that became kind of mainstreamed in American society. You know, so in other words, it it the it, it's it's kind of like right now the discussions in American politics. You know, they 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 want this little aspect of Scandinavian economic policy. They don't want it as a whole, and right, yeah. that's a yeah. testimony to common grace as well. We uh, uh, a few of us sort of worked uh, with. Uh, Couple of Texas legislators know, a few sessions ago, trying to make some ground and headway on uh, surrogacy, and uh, you know, libertarian state like that, boy, you, 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 we couldn't even make an inroad on the idea that hey, let's not have the state of Texas enforce surrogacy contracts, right? Like, but that was a bridge too far, uh, and 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 it was just hopeless. Which it was is depressing to think that like, wow, we've kind of made our own bed, right? Why are we surprised that uh, Obergefell happened? It's probably 
happened later than we should have expected it to, given that we had paved the way for so long. Right. No, it's uh, it's not necessarily just a domino effect. It's kind of like uh, you know lighting one firecracker in a box. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. not if it's when. And then hoping that the you know the big one doesn't go off. Right. That's not realistic. Yeah. So, Professor, let me ask you this: what, What's it like to write about these topics and to write with uh, the kind of clarity you do? Uh, for instance, in a place like the University of Texas at Austin. Right. Um, kind of solitary. Yeah. I would say lonely, except uh, my personality tracks towards being okay with going off by myself to write. So it, it doesn't bother me too much personally. Uh, it, it's had its moments along the way, 2012, after the New Family Structure Study, that was a particularly poignant year or two. Uh, various times along the way, you know, you, you understand that the university is not happy with you. Um, and yet, uh, let's see, I think it was 2017. Um, uh, even though my colleagues said, you know, they don't think I'm worth promoting anymore. Uh, the, the university professed, uh, president sort of saw through that and said, you know, I think there's animus going on here that is, we're not treating this fellow fairly in comparison to his peers. And they promoted me to full, which sort of felt like, okay, I mean, you, you kind of breathe a sigh of relief at that point, knowing that any squabbles, battles going forward, um, uh, are, are not about, um, your academic uh, sort of right to be here. And so, uh, you know, it's had its moments, but you know, it's, it's also, it's Texas. I love the state of Texas. Um, I like many of the people on campus, the students, I find quality and warm and uh, 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 even empathetic sometimes. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been better than some people might think. Some people would say, well, why don't you go someplace where they like you? One could try to do that, but uh, you know, I think uh, I have a strong sense of, of calling and responsibility uh, that's reinforced over time to sort of keep a, a, a foothold in a secular university uh, if you've got one. Um, I don't think I write things that are outrageous. Uh, what is outrageous really is the sort of the shrinking space and territory for having significant arguments and discussions about things that matter. Um, so it's one of those things where like, I think I totally belong. I can't believe you don't think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm very thankful you're there. And uh, I, I, I do have to wonder if a, a, a young version of yourself uh, could be hired these days. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to wonder. But nonetheless, yeah. Uh, a part of uh, our Christian commitment is to fulfill the stewardship we have been given, and uh, you do that regularly. Uh, and I want to tell you how much I appreciate your book, The Future of Christian Marriage, and uh, I commend it. Pastors need to read it. Christians need to read it. And uh, I do believe it's, uh, it's going to be cited decades into the future, and uh, I hope you will convince some, if not many. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it.
Many thanks to my guest, Mark Rignaris, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.